1: 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. shopify.com slash work. Today's episode was sponsored by Phobe.com, helping people of all ages to unlock their creative potential. To find out more about phobie's events and what they can do for you, visit com. That's F-O-B-I dot com. Full of bright ideas. One quick message before I start the show. You can find all the links and resources for this episode by visiting the show notes on rickyrichards.com. I also want to thank you ahead of time for listening to the podcast. It's a pleasure to produce and I'd love to share my passion for podcasting with more people. So if you enjoy this show, please help me spread the word either by subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher or sharing this episode. Let's get into the show. Welcome to Ricky Richards represents the show where I talk tips for success with leading figures of creativity and innovation. Hey, everyone, thank you for tuning into the podcast today. I'm joined by David Pugh Jones who is currently the commercial and brand director at The Smalls. Is that correct? It is indeed, yes. Fantastic. Well, um, obviously, you've had a wealth of experience. I don't want to get it wrong. So I'm going to pass it over to you just to maybe explain um, what you do now and also maybe some of your prior jobs up to this point. Okay, yeah. yeah. So I am the,
0: the commercial and brand strategy director at The Smalls. Uh, firstly, The Smalls is a content marketplace that supports over 15,000 independent filmmakers and production companies around the world, helping them to make content predominantly for brands, and that's across any platforms from social through to uh, TV and out of home. Uh, but in, in essence, most of that content is predominantly been social over the last six months, really. My background, uh, I won't go too far back because it will make me sound really old, But I have done a stint at BuzzFeed, so I've learned the uh, inner workings of a company that is at the forefront of changing the footprint of how content is shared uh, in the digital world. Uh, Previous to that, I was the global creative director at Microsoft uh, on the advertising division, working with the likes of uh, Skype and Xbox and MSN and Bing and Windows uh, and our R&D team, so uh, 10 years working with them was uh, an eye-opener, to say the least. And then previous to that, I worked with a number of tech startups, um, been in the digital world for nearly 20 years. And before that, um, I started out in page makeup and, and print, print shops a long,
1: long time ago. And also, you started your own company as well, didn't you, for a little while?
0: I did, yes. So I did it as a little test bed to find out exactly what was going on in the industry. So I created my own little brand consultancy, and it's still living today now. And Most of the leads that come through it actually become clients of the smalls. Um, invariably, a lot of my clients and, re- and the relationships I have with friends and peers in the industry is, is they just want advice. Uh, um, I'm, in the, I'm in the world of uh, I'm happy to give my uh, advice for free. Uh, which breaks the model of a brand consultancy completely. And it helps me out as well. <laughs> exactly. But uh, <laughs> look, um, I did it because I wanted to play around with a few clients that wanted me to go in and give them some strategic advice about where their brand was going, whether they're doing the right thing, and how could I help them do that. So it was
1: a, it was a good little play toy. So uh, with that in mind, I think some of my questions today should be should be on point. Hopefully, for uh, what you can deliver in terms of advice. I wanted to start off with BuzzFeed, just because very recognizable name. And I wondered if you could sum up actually what are some of the takeaways you learned from BuzzFeed.
0: Yeah, I think the first the one that still stands the test of time for me is the art and science of content. And that's both editorial and branded or commercial, whatever you want to call it. And it's the fact that there are over ten years of an, an abundance, a complete abundance of data and insight about why content travels. And I won't go into all of the, the, the details around it, but in essence, once you learn what consumers love to share, love to talk about, love to comment on, you can start to create content off the back of that. So one of the, the things that is very good at, and uh, I'll give you an example, it was the dress, that people didn't know if it was in black and blue or white and gold the first article that came off the back of a tweet from a, you know, a, uh, a Scottish mother-in-law about what color it was when she's taken a picture of it, it was the 45 articles that we did after that that actually created the, 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 you know, the reach in the consumer story because we were watching the comments and, you know for example, all the comments were coming in and people were saying, why are you screwing with my mind? Um, I, I have no idea what color it is why don't you explain to me what it is? So we went to uh, a, a science guy that understood understood the way that people's eyes perceived color, and we wrote a piece about it. And of course, that got just as much um, as much attention as the first piece did about exactly what color it is. So there's an, there's an art and science about why content travels, and there's a reason why. So there's, there's an emotive thing. Does it make people laugh? Does it make people cry? Um, does it communicate some sort of story? You'll find a great example I found was is that in Germany, uh, consumers, uh, Germans were sharing more English content than they were German content socially because it made them look c- cleverer, as in they, ha- they knew more than one language. So once you start to analyze markets and, and cultures and categories, you can start to then prioritize and think about the next level of content that comes up.
1: I think there's a fantastic resource that people can read to kind of delve into that a little bit more, which is the book Contagious by, uh, I think it's John Berger or something, but it kind of yeah. outlines those the, 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 the viral uh, mechanics. One thing that I always come back to with that, so I think I mentioned this to you when we were at the Smalls Festival. So with regards to the dress, <clears throat> it, I think it's okay sometimes with media companies who are looking to drive traffic to get click-throughs and ads and that kind of thing. But what I find is, is that a lot of the engaging content that's online right now tends to be this stuff which has been caught organically and it's very difficult to replicate that for, an ad, uh, for a brand. Yeah. And so how um, someone, like if you were a dressmaker, it would be very, very difficult to create that. Is this blue or uh, silver Was with the two colors? Uh, and then actually drive traffic as a result of that. Yeah. So do you think that it changes depending on the media uh the the industry you're in whereas with BuzzFeed they're looking to drive traffic to their site to read editorial as a, compared to a consumer that's looking to uh no uh, someone that's trying to sell product.
0: Yeah, I mean any any marketing or marketer that's trying to sell a product invariably they they'll have a strategic approach through any calendar year and they'll have elements where they're saying, here's where we're gonna launch our next campaign, here's the brief, and they'll either go to an agency, a strategic agency, a PR agency, or they'll come to the smalls, hopefully, uh, and they'll say, help us to tell this story. Now, that's great, but invariably, that it works sort of in the old model too, because that was sort of the four pillars, four pieces of large content, very little anything social cut down, and that was the way it was, see the response, and then decide what you're gonna do three months later. What's happening now for back of what you said and what the likes of Buzzfeed and many other social platforms um, are doing from a content point of view is uh, one is is scale. So social scale, not just living in a walled garden on their own content sites, trying to generate audience to make more money with ads alongside them. They're actually then pushing them out to try and build up a fan base of consumers that want to tell a story or have an emotive response in return. You know. We did uh, recently a, a piece for a publisher, which was replicating a giant Jaffa cake. We baked a giant Jaffa cake. Now, lo and behold, we never realised that that would get something like eight and a half million views in the space of twenty-four hours. But it just shows you that there is this very—you you can create quirky content that has no brand association that that gets picked up. You know, this this natural vibe of getting picked up from content.
1: And so that <coughs> the natural vibe of being picked up and uh, creating popular content. If it's not directly associated with the the brand values that you're trying to convey, yeah, is it still valuable? Is is it the thing about sentiment over time and and, and branded content, so to say? And
0: yeah, I mean, let me give you an example. So we've, we over the summer we worked with Deliveroo, uh, who are uh, again an up and coming brand, but what we actually did was something that was near real time content, where they were responding to events that were happening in the world, actually at the time it was related to um, the Olympics. Um, And I think most people in the news saw when the pool turned green, I mean, it was a big story at the time. Uh, And you know they don't have any association with the Olympics. So we had to be very careful because of the uh, the IP and the rights alongside that. But what we did manage to do is create some quirky fun pieces of animated content that could go out on their social feeds that were relevant to things that were happening not just at the Olympics but also at, at that time from a news point of view and now if you can respond with an agile content you know strategy that delivers near real time content that has uh, some relevance at that point to consumers then in actual fact you can have what they call is an always on uh, concept or strategy or in some cases they call it evergreen whereas effectively you have this constant communication with consumers and they start to feel like you're empowering them with something that they, they want to hear and also it makes you feel a little bit more relevant so there's that, there's that brand association there I,
1: I try and convey that idea to advertising students and I refer to them as pronto projects, the idea that you jump on <coughs> the media as soon as something happens and kind of leverage the growing attention graph of that new story and pull it back to your own brand, yeah. Um, which I think is a fantastic strategy, especially if you're trying to get noticed with with little to no money. Um, you refer there to you say it's kind of evergreen, and that it, from a marketing perspective, that uh, strikes me as contradictory to what um, like typically evergreen content would be something you could create now, but it's still relevant in two years. Whereas you're talking about something that um, is current and right now um i just wondered if there was like a, a different way of uh, looking at evergreen that i wasn't familiar with well uh, let me look at it and put it another way then there is this time there
0: are times where content is created or has been created previously that becomes it retrends, or it didn't pick up as big as it did the first time around and it just happens to be because it was reposted or is re or, or someone else commented on it and it became relevant uh, I saw an amazing piece last year that it was close to my heart anyway, but it was a, a story around a Scottish barber who worked out the only way he could cut this boy with autism's hair was to lay put, lay on the floor alongside him in all of the hair uh, to actually cut it on the ground because he was reading a book or playing with something and he, and, and he concentrated on what he was doing laying on the floor so the barber laid alongside him and cut it and it was so poignant because actually it had a relevance and a resonance to everywhere else in the world that, that knew someone that was trying to cut uh, you know an artist, artistic boy's hair and it became this massive thing all of a sudden and it and it, and that's when content has no bounds and it can travel because that picture didn't need any words alongside it it actually traveled across 50 to 60 markets where everyone felt that they could associate with it in some way and i think that's what's happening is is that if someone thinks that they've seen something or remember something and then they attach it to another story, it just regenerates and goes again.
1: I think that's a really interesting point to make because I think as well oftentimes people create content and then if it doesn't take off instantly, they they move on to the next. But I think part of content is not only creating it, but the, the promotion side of it, um, something that people often miss out, I guess. And it's interesting to think that actually just maybe timing is a is a massive factor there.
0: Yeah, I would also say is for any content that you create, concentrate on leveraging as much as you possibly can. Now, if that means that you're on a photo shoot uh, for a day, then I would say is is I'm not just interested in the stuff that's just from from the camera angle that you know that you've got planned. I would like to see behind the scenes, the raw footage, the the comments, the you know everything that happens at that event. You know, we do that a lot when we're filming for clients. Now we say is is Have you completely thought out what you're trying to achieve here? And the chances are that we could potentially embed a load of other content. So rather than, um, I'll give you an example. There was a a quote from a VP of Pepsi uh, last year who was saying, Is, is, you know, we used to create four pieces of content a year and now we want 4,000. And the premise is is that he could still go on a, a shoot. Uh, and you know producing a load of content for them but rather than having one or two pieces you could have 50 from that one shoot and an actual fact from a logistics and a cost perspective is saving an incredible amount of money from a marketing perspective because all he's saying is, is right here's potentially the platforms here's the content and this could be it doesn't have to all go out at the same time it could go out over a period of time on all of these of these platforms over the next year or two years.
1: Yeah, I think uh, what's interesting about that is that kind of years ago, you would have uh, brands kind of liked to hold keep the walls up with regards to the behind the scenes and all that stuff because it was about creating this almost fake yeah. image of what that brand embodied. But now it's there's a lot of transparency, and um, that kind of behind the scenes content makes a real difference. Um, so yeah, just to yeah, really... I mean, just
0: to add to that as well, we had uh, Travis Knight, who's the CEO of and founder of Leica Studios at the Smalls Film Festival this year in September. And I was blown away and, and shocked, to be honest, about how much behind-the-scenes footage he was willing to share with us that now has is, is gone viral and there's loads of content out there that, that is being shared. But he he's blending, you know, animation, stop-motion and CGI to bring the next generation. And He did it for Kubo and the Two Strings. I mean, we had a load of filmmakers that produced animations off the back of that to promote that movie, but to see how that story came to life was the bit that you know really got me excited about wanting to watch the movie because I could see where it originated from. I saw I saw how much
1: time and effort went into producing that movie. Yeah, no, I haven't seen the film, but I'm, I've watched that behind the scenes, and it's absolutely captivating to yeah. to see it. Uh, yeah, I th- I thought it was just as interesting probably as well. Like I say, I haven't seen the film. Yeah, but. For me as a creator i loved seeing that stuff yeah i mean i would say to anyone that hasn't seen it you know just go and have a good look at it
0: and behind it and you can just see how much effort you know the props the the green screening you know the 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 amount of staff really you know or the the crew and it quite i mean quite limited you'd think that there would be i mean there are yes there are a lot of people behind the scenes but but just by watching it there's a few animators that are producing something that is just awe-inspiring to be honest
1: I'm interested to know how you measure the ROI on video content. So, Because obviously there's views and stuff, but does that translate? And how do you do it with the smalls? Do you, do you uh, kind of put case studies together afterwards? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there, look, there
0: are a number of ways. I mean, invariably, we've, we've come a long way since the banner and the click rate. And, you know, it's interesting that we're still trying to work out the best model for uh, showcasing the success of a campaign in the digital world, whereas the likes of TV have used the same model for, you know, since since the land before time. And look, invariably, is there's a number of success metrics. Um, Ideally, any client or brand that has a product to sell would say to you is, it's bums on seats, or, you know, cars off a forecourt, or, you know, footfall into a supermarket if they're selling the product and there's an uplift in sales because of that work, then invariably there's a success metric associated to that. But I'd also say is is that we are in the realms because of how much content is out there in a test and learn world. And most good, really good marketeers alongside associating a a small budget to innovation will, will test content and learn from every piece of it so that they continually evolve and continually create new content that reaches not just the aud- the target audience, you know, those stereotypical, I only want 18 to 24 year olds. It just is completely farcical. You know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, and I, I have a father-in-law who says to me is, is why don't, why don't cool brands advertise to me because I'm interested and I'll buy them if they, if they, if they tell me a story. So it's opening up that, you know, who who's interested, you, finding brand fans, finding brand advocates and getting them to help tell that story. But going back to your answer success metrics invariably are associated to shares and likes predominantly from a social perspective uh, an uplift in in how eyeballs Um, the other thing with video is is seeing it through to the end you know there's a there's a high demand in creating content that's compelling enough that people will want to see it to the end and the challenge we have with algorithms changing all of the time for example, on Facebook is, at the moment, the first five seconds is integrally the most important for that platform because you've got to get through that part before anyone else wants to see it again. But short form is changing that. Instagram, like lots of Instagram, uh, the demise of Vine. You're seeing the evolution of how content will be created in the next year.
1: The fact that um, getting to the end of a video is, is, a, is a milestone, I guess, and a target, does that mean that brands are changing where their call to actions typically appear? Because uh, with branded content, there's no reason why you couldn't slip call to actions in the beginning, the end, the middle. You kind of got a lot of control. Um, but do brands typically still keep that stuff to the end, or do they not include them all together? No, it depends. I mean, look, you can integrate brands
0: into content quite easily these days. And I think the the rule of thumb is, from my perspective and my experience, for every client I've worked with, is don't force it. Don't make it feel unnatural. I've seen a couple of ads recently, and I won't name them, but I've honestly I've laughed, I've barely laughed out loud. Please name them. <laughs> I've, I've laughed out loud. I'll, I'll move on. I've laughed out loud <laughs> because they were so bad. In actual fact, I've thought they were so good, and I mean that in a, in a you know, in a thank you very much for giving to, this to me, so I can share it with my friends and say this is how you don't do it. Now, you know, it's it's shameful in the sense, but unfortunately is is that there's an education piece still to be done with content creators, with distribution platforms and with marketeers about creating content that tells a story and if you can have a brand story that actually feels is authentic, feels authentic and delivers a story and a narrative that actually makes people's lives better for, you know, for, for, for good you know, and if it's for bad because people need to tell a story because it, it's compelling enough and great but realistically do something that feels authentic enough that is going to empower people to want to know more or want to share it or want to talk about it or want to love it.
1: Going back just one quick step to your point about marketing to to necessarily older people as opposed to a closed demographic. There's some like interesting facts regarding the age of people now uh, in the, the way that they feel rather than the, their actual age. So, if you looked back X number of years at a 40 year old, they'd act very differently to the way they do now. And that some of the statistics regarding things like selfies or a lot of engagement on social, it's surprising how old people are. Yeah. And so, does that just mean that our old means of targeting people are amiss? Are, are and before you answer that, <coughs> um, I think that currently, um, over fifty percent of content is consumed via a mobile phone, and of that, a large percentage of that is via social media channels. So, how does that change the game as far as video content is concerned? Does it have to be different because it's on a mobile?
0: Yeah, I mean, vertical video is a big, big, ish, big talking point at the moment in our in our world, and we're we're, you know, we're educating clients on that. And you know, you're right. Is that you know some of the stats I've seen and whether they're true or not is still is still mind boggling in the sense. You know, eighty-four by by the end of next year, eighty-four percent of all digital consumption will be on mobiles. Um, you know, of that, over half of that is is vertical video. Now, put it this way: I don't think you're going to still watch Lord of the Rings on a mo- on a small mobile phone um, rather than get watching it, going home and watching it on a widescreen TV. But the fact that the, the way that content is being consumed completely differently. And the other thing is, is that there's a variety of platforms out there. You know, We're not on four channels anymore. We're on 4,000 and counting. And and so Marxists are finding it much harder to find people, but they're having to be uh, much cleverer about how they actually create that content and how they view it. And that's why we say is, is that you've got to try and create a, a vast array of content for Platforms and formats, so that you can get, you know, that you can start to test the water and find out where they are. But you're right, is is that, you know, the older generation want to communicate with the younger generation. It's a family thing as well. Is is that they'll try and stay um, down with the cool kids. Um, you know, I, you know, I'm a 40 plus year old and I have Snapchat and I have every other social platform because I want to know what's going on. I want to see what other people are doing and I want to. Uh, I wanna see how marketers are using it currently so I can then go and take that experience and, and give it back to my clients and say, look, here's the good, here's the bad, here's the ugly. This is what we recommend.
1: Just to pull like probably a very trivial point from what you just said, but you were talking about horizontal versus vertical mm. video. Vertical video predominantly is basically through people that are just help the way they hold their phone, right? Yeah. And then they record that way. Are you suggesting that people are actually embracing that as a as a f- like a means of filming now because people are used to consuming that way yeah absolutely i mean funny enough i sent two examples to uh, a client uh, just
0: yesterday one of them was a uh asian pop band girl band that had filmed their video in a vertical video style But it was filmed within loads of platforms, like Instagram, for example. And they were coming out of the screen. They were using the space cleverly, really cleverly. It was brilliant, you know. And they, the association of the video with the text and the image, it looked like someone was texting within a phone, and then they were communicating. It was just genius. It was really well done. And then I saw another one that was produced by BBC that was about uh, the refugee crisis and how phones are being used by uh, refugees to tell their family where they are. For example, there was a demo where someone managed to get a signal, he was on, uh, he was on a boat, and he took a load of photos, shared those, and then he, he sent a message saying, I, I don't know where I am, I don't know what's going on. And then his father said, "Text him and said, open your compass, give us, the, give us the details of where you are and send them back to me. So he could tell him where he was. And it was just this incredible story that was, but it was created in vertical video in the same way that that phone would have been used as in any style. Funny enough, when I was at Microsoft, I vaguely remember us launching a phone that was re- quite square. And I think it was before its time. It was too soon because it was in that Instagram sort of, you know, square format where it doesn't matter which angle you flipped it around. You'd still get the same content in the same style.
1: It seems as you've touched upon it. What was it like to work at Microsoft? You were there for quite some time, and you know the, your competitors, Apple, obviously at that point. Um, yeah, what was your role there? Because I mean, it's a huge company. Well, it was an
0: it was a number of roles. One was to create compelling branded content for clients and marketeers that wanted to reach Microsoft's audience. At the time, I was there; it was over a billion people. So we had a lot, a lot of people to play with, um, utilizing a, a vast variety of tools. I was very fortunate as well that I got a lot, spent a lot of time in the R and D team in in Redmond, in America, um, you know, near the Seattle headquarters. And you know what? It was I saw things that were before their time. So I saw technology and products that that the consumers won't see for another ten years, and. You, you know, I mean, for me, there was things like 3D printing uh, in, the, in the next two years. Literally, I think this is one of the, the biggest things. It's like the microwave oven. This, this, th- this 3D printing will become a phenomenon in its own, own right, without a doubt, of people uh, Bluetoothing images to their 3D printers and printing anything from a spanner to a pair of, you know, um, Le Bouton shoes for, for going out on a Friday night in hours.
1: That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
0: Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/achieve today. I was looking at was translating the exciting things I could see and taking them to clients now that could try and marry up the, the you know research and development theories and try and make them come to life in a way that you know told a good story for, for brands. But to answer your question, um, an amazing, an amazing company that's making a hell of a lot of change. Um, and, you know, those 10 years were hugely valuable to my career, without a doubt.
1: You, talk, uh, you touched on briefly there this idea of kind of getting new tech in front of in your hands early. Um, that seems to be like a fairly decent strategy as f- in terms of how to kind of get uplift on platforms, be there early, leverage it, get a good following. And then when the critical mass land on that platform, you can kind of ride that wave a little bit. You seem like an authority figure already. I wouldn't say that, but I would say that um,
0: there is an element of risk and reward there. Sometimes I noticed that we would have a product and we'd hold it back and wait for a competitor to launch it, and then we'd tweak ours and then release ours so that it was in, in, in you know, invariably superior in some way. So we, we were taking the learning. So we weren't always first to market, but we were first to insight. You know, first to create a good
1: product. <laughs> yeah,
0: I mean, you know, look, that's not always the case, but invariably we are in a in uh, environment where, from from life skills through to, you know, when I when I first started at Microsoft, you know, that uh, the job I got the next year, the title didn't exist. So this is a scary thing for anyone that's coming into the industry now. Whether you're a filmmaker, a content creator, or whatever it is that you want to do in life, is realistically that most job titles don't even exist that we're going to be in five years time so the, the concept for anyone really is is to work out what is the future of content yeah my kids my kids say to me is is what should we do when we're older and I said um there was two things I would say to that one is is that um one of my colleagues on a panel at our festival actually said is remember this is that Um, We're not driving ambulances. And that stuck with me because it was quite poignant. Is is that, you know, there are people out there that are doing jobs that will last forever. But in the realms of our world, is is content marketing and advertising, there's always going to be a life for brands. You know, in a thousand years, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, futuristic in some way, but the likes of Pepsi will still have uh, their brand up in light somewhere. It just is a question of how and when and why and
1: what. It's funny that we've got this far into a conversation about video without touching on VR. Uh, is that something that the Smalls is playing with?
0: We, we are. And you know, we're being, we're being sensible with our advice about VR because I think it's... Um, I actually, in fact, I saw a presentation a couple of days ago that said, you know, as much as VR is exciting, I think AR is the next phenomenon as well because you underestimate VR it is more tech involved. You know, there's, there's more kit that comes with it. It's you know, 30 to 40% more expensive. It's time consuming from a production point of view, post production point of view. Uh, and at the moment is, f- as far as I can see, most brands are using it because it's the shiniest thing on the, on the shelf. They're not using it because they should use it. And my advice to brands is, is if you give me a brief and I think it fits using a drone or using VR or AR, whatever it may be, then of course I'll recommend it. And you know, and our community will also help us come up with ideas around that, that technology. But I, I just think, don't talk about it for the sake of talking about it. Yes, it's absolutely exciting, but if you talk to anyone in VR, they will say, if you're wearing a headset and driving a rally car, you're, the chances are you're still gonna be throwing up after about 30 seconds. Um, <laughs> AR, much more exciting because it's it physically, it's, the, it's you know, the blending of real time and augmented on a mobile phone, and everyone has more, you know, the stats on how many people have got more than one phone is just incredible. Um, and what, what are they? Um, I can't, from the top of my head, I can't remember them, so I won't say it because I'll probably get it completely wrong. But I think it was something like an average of two point two in you know forty percent of the world. Yeah, I said it. Don't quote me on that. Um, <laughs> but the essence is that I have two phones, right? I'm flipping between the two of them: one big screen, one small screen. And I, you know, I'm constantly exploring what tech can be on each of those phones and how they then fit with me going back to my desk and looking at a. You know, at the, you know, the screen or how that fits with uh, TV. But yeah, VR is, I haven't seen enough of the exciting stuff that's going to properly blow me away yet for me to say, you know what, this is going to be. It's
1: time. Yeah. Uh, so, what do you think is the most undervalued kind of space at the moment in terms of uh, kind of ad space for, for brands? Um, good one. Blimey.
0: I don't know i I, you know, I think really is you've just got to contemplate where you think it should live and and have a little play you know is predominantly the likes of YouTube and Facebook huge in the sense of their proliferation now and their reach but there are other platforms and other ways to get content out there I mean did you see yesterday in the news about the the filmmaker that that created uh, for his for his content piece uh a piece of content that effectively looked... That, you know, he, he bluffed his way into saying that it was a John Lewis ad because he had the John Lewis logo on the back of it. And then before you know it, it wasn't John Lewis... So John Lewis felt like they have been strong-armed into it. They've now given him access to behind-the-scenes of their shoot. I think they had to because if you look at the press and the consumer stories and the PR, they're like, why don't they just hire him? Well, it's not John Lewis he should be hiring. Him. It's the creative agency that are producing the TV show that should be hiring if they think that's right
1: And I watched that and I thought it was a nice bit of content to begin with I thought yeah. it tail the, the tail end of it didn't, Like um, you know but what typically happens with these things is they get some uplift <clears throat> and then get disproportionate amounts of credit oftentimes um, I, not to say it wasn't a great piece of student work it was um, but yeah still yeah, anyway kind of going off the point a little bit there Um I've got one question to ask you, and this one may seem a little bit uh, like touchy, I guess, but um, yeah, the, just an honest opinion would be fantastic because this is something that I struggle with myself. And um, I've always believed that if you're good at branding and advertising, that it kind of doesn't make sense to work for a company, and that it, you should almost use those skill sets to uh, create your own thing. And I mean, that's what I touched on at the beginning of this that you'd created your own, yeah thing and it's seen from your profile that you've got this kind of entrepreneurial streak in you and i often look at people in our industry and they're offering advice to brands and then they don't follow through with their own advice yeah um what is your opinion on that
0: uh i'll give you the honest answer there is is there's an element to creating something on your own but there's a there's another piece which is called loneliness and it's a tough gig to get out there and do it and you have to, one, you have to believe in yourself. Two is you have to have a lot of friends and family that support you. And don't get me wrong, they did. And I'm, I'm, fortu- I'm very fortunate that I still have that business. But for me is, I wanted to be agnostic. I wanted to produce content that could live anywhere. I wanted to work with every brand. I didn't care if it was Red Bull or Vodafone or um, Nike or even you know um, the C G brands that are just trying to, trying to sell incontinence pads. The point is is that I think if you're a creator and an idea maker and you want to come up with great stories and ideas, then why force yourself into something and working for something where you, you sort of pigeonhole yourself? And that's easy for me to say because I'm very lucky and fortunate in this sense that I, every brand brief that comes in the door, I'm on it. And invariably there are some that are more that I would want to work on than others. But the point is, is that that's the only way to learn is to work on briefs that, that cross the depth and breadth of the marketing world. And they can come from any world, from any market, uh, and sometimes they have no idea of what they want to do. And going you know, going it alone is, is hard, tough, but you know what, you learn fast. Uh, and you pick yourself up pretty quickly and you get stuck into all those stuff. I think the other element I would say to any career, and, I, and, and as much as people can try and force what they want to do in their lives, I There's an element of fate and fortune. And what I mean by that is, is that I happened to be in the right place at the right time when Microsoft came calling. I happened to be at the right place at the right time when BuzzFeed came calling. And then I happened to be at the right place and the right time to meet the founder of, uh, you know, the co founder and the founder of The Smalls. And so for me, it was just like a natural fit. It, everything felt right. And so there's a gut feeling to what you want to do in your life and your career. And I think that mirrors in what you want to do from a career, you know, from a life point of view too.
1: Some great advice. I, I, the reason I bring that up as well is because I think that a lot of young people especially admire these these solo uh, creatives, you know, people that are doing it for themselves. Yeah. And um, it is a tough gig and there is a lot of serendipity with regards to if you become successful or not. Um, but yeah, so it's nice to get your perspective on that. Just but for um, just on that note, I mean, I have a number of friends that are
0: that are working their butts off trying to make uh, a difference, and some of their businesses are amazing, like incredible. And I, you know, I, I, I definitely, I definitely doff my cap to any of them and, and anyone out there that has a talent that doesn't feel like they're utilizing it in the best possible way and is willing to give it a shot. Because to be honest, you've got anything to lose, and you know what from a career point of view if you walk into a room and you're being interviewed for another company and you actually tell them in honest true facts what you're trying you were trying to do and why you did it whether you succeeded or failed makes no odds at all anymore
1: yeah no I think I've I use that as an advice to people as well I say you know what's the the worst case scenario is you get out for a couple of years you fail and then you go back and you've actually had way more experiences than someone that's been sat in an office for okay. X number of months. Completely. So There's no there's no lose there. I think, say for example, someone like Elon Musk, I know he's got a lot of investors to to, to deal with and this is a, 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 an outlier to say the least. But if he fails at doing SpaceX and Tesla and becomes broke, there's no doubt that that guy becomes a multimillionaire again within a couple of years because people see his ambition and see his talent... And so, basically, people that take these risks and give it a go, there's no lose there? Yeah, I mean, what I loved about him
0: recently, one is, is I would love to be able to afford a Tesla. Uh, I, I was fortunate to get test-driven in one the last time I was in America. And, you know, the car is so fast, it's frightening. The, the, the battery is, the, you know, the boot's in the front, the battery's the whole <coughs> chassis. And it's a coupe, like a seven series BMW that can have two seats in the boot. I mean, he's a- absolutely genius. And the fact that he was willing to give all of his uh, patents to every other car manufacturer in the world so that they could become, <coughs> they could create cars for the greater good. Um, and they turned him down.
1: You see, uh, what's strange about that is because <coughs> I, I was chatting to a chap the other day, he's, uh, he deals with the stock market and people within the banking industry, they don't like Elon Musk because he his sole motivation is the space project, so it's not about profit for him, or it is about profit because obviously that helps him to fund his space program, but then he'll give away patents, he does everything with the, the greater good at heart, and that's contradictory to the way people do it to such a degree that it could potentially harm him. Um, again another divergence but um just interesting nonetheless so the last uh, five questions i've got here that hopefully a bit more quick fire they're just things that people can do resources they can go and discover so um who were your heroes growing up and and maybe who are some people that you look to now
0: uh yeah i mean when i was younger when you know early 20s i was always a bit geeky i had mass ocd so bill gates i was a massive fan of bill gates you know, not just because of the empire was building, but because technology, I loved. I was inquisitive about technology. I still am, um, you know, put me at a dinner table with anyone from any age and I'll ask them so many questions, I'll probably drain them. But I'm, I'm intrigued to know more. I always wanted to hear from people or that were that breaking, probably because I didn't want to do it myself, but breaking <laughs> barriers. You know, and that's why, you know, Elon Musk is a great example. I think now you've hit them on the head there is, you know, he, people can aspire and they can sort of associate with him. They could probably still talk to him over a dinner table and nothing would be the same. Um, I, You know, I had a dinner with Jonah Peretti last year and he founded BuzzFeed. And yet, if you didn't know who he was, you would never have known he was, you know, a, a billionaire. <laughs> you, you would never have known. He just was clever, bright, inquisitive, and he just he, he just wanted to, to make a difference. And it's just, you know, people like that, that, they're the people you want to sit next to and they're the ones you want to drill um, questions with because you just want to learn. So I would say, you know, um, in any world, if you're working anywhere in any company, do not ever be afraid to ask a question or any question.
1: Great advice. Um, what books and learning resources uh, do you recommend to people? Hmm. Or is there anything that you go, do you know what, this would be something, I guess, just what are your favorites?
0: Yeah, I think in 98, I, I bought a book on learn to code. So, I, you know, when I first moved into the uh, internet, I started in working along, in, I was sort of operational, creative and sales, and I wanted to learn to code because I actually at the time, um, from an aspiration point of view, one is I wanted to understand the mechanics of the internet and two is i thought there was an opportunity to work, uh, earn a shedload of cash you know br- <laughs> brutally you know honestly that, yeah absolutely brutally that was you know that was the line coders at that time were driving porsche boxsters and living a dream and everyone you, know, you couldn't find them fast enough so i thought if i could go down that route and also use use my understanding of the mechanics of the internet and in actual fact i hated it i i, I hated that you know mundane, too much time on my own, headphones on looking at, but don't get me wrong I I, I, I applaud anyone that can do that that can have that focus, but my attention span is not long enough to do that, so I realised that I needed to go out and be in the more expressive world and actually take my experience as a creative uh, and a person that loves to talk to people and then use that in a way that I thought was best
1: So that's kind of don't follow the money in a weird way well, yeah,
0: don't... I mean, look, some of the best advice I've had from uh, an ECT Versace who's some produced some of the best work in the world was be yourself. Okay, that's it. Just do what you've got to do, what you want to do, be yourself, um, and make as many friends along the way. I'm a firm believer in um, there's no point in having enemies in, in this world. Life's too short, and this industry is far too familiar for you to be uh, contemplating falling out with people. So make everyone your friend, and if you share, they'll share back.
1: Uh, slightly off topic there, but it's kind of surrounding free speech, and but also this idea that with content, when you put it out, that oftentimes you're trying to hit a niche, a, a sub, like a part of the long tail, <coughs> and when you're saying make friends with everyone. I'm just pulling up because it's like uh, oftentimes you actually just want to hit your target demographic. And if some people dislike it, that's, that's okay because you're getting your true fans, so to say. I, gu- I guess it works in life when you say don't have enemies. But you, with regards to content, do you think it's a wiser decision to be specific? Uh, no, because in actual fact, what I've found now, which was less
0: so 10 years ago and even more less so 20 years ago, is collaborations are fundamental people need other people to help them get on. And it may be that you know someone in the industry or that they have a piece of technology or they have some experience that helps evolve and develop what you want to do um, as a business or as a mindset. And so an actual fact, I would say I'm probably even more collaborative with people now than I ever was before.
1: Okay. Um, Are there any tools that you find essential to what you do every day? This is just a purely productivity thing to help people
0: yeah i mean look uh, I, ha- I have a, a large amount of contacts and you know the biggest problem i have is not being able to reach out to them often enough and that's uh, and i would say is, is unfortunately that's the way of the world now so you have to bite the bullet a little bit but i want to make sure that i'm always on the pulse now realistically it's near on impossible there's too much stuff happening I'll, uh, um our brains cannot consume the amount of data and content that is available to us on a daily basis. It's impossible. Um, what we need to do is, is um, tether, tether as much information as we possibly can, um, translate it, um, and then actually then output the stuff that we think the best. I use a multitude of platforms. I watch, I listen, I learn. I, I look at my friends and companions and peers on, on social networks. Um, I look at the news feeds. I follow tech sites, I follow the agencies, um, both media, creative PR, um, I look at client wires, literally anything, there may be a nugget of information that makes me think about the next thing, and then I'll go away and hunt where I can find it. But I think you've sort of got to just, you've got to be inquisitive with the data that you've got, um, but don't let it bog you down, because it's quite easy to lose focus.
1: So, is this a tool that you wish was uh, created? (laughs) Something that helps? Yeah, I mean, funny
0: enough, um, without going into detail, um, we came up with this idea about eight years ago of Mm. creating a trended content site that was relevant to every individual consumer based on insight and data. But I mean, look, that's what the likes of Google and Bing do in some ways, but um, and Amazon do it, you know, from a shopping perspective, but they're just not quite personal enough. Imagine amalgamating the technology of all of those three and creating something that everyone could go in that was completely personalized that was um, an evolving piece of tech that actually started to learn as it did it.
1: I think Facebook's fairly close.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely. But I just think it's not quite personal enough. And the, the problem with that is is that there's plenty of brands that advertise to you that you're not interested in. Um, with... With the amount of data that they're gleaning now, without a doubt, you know, it's a great platform for brands to tell stories. But again, they have to be authentic to do it.
1: Um, I think I know the answer to this one, but what event would you recommend people go to?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I, there's lots of events that I think are absolutely brilliant. You know, look, uh, if you can go on a shoestring budget to the, the Canned Lion Festival, absolutely. I think you'll make friends. Um, contacts, clients, um, and you enjoy yourself um, with copious amounts of wine. I I mean, it would be dumb of me not to say, look, we're in our 12th year now of the Smalls Film Festival and we've got eight categories. It's, um, you know, the entry point is is, is incredibly um, cost-effective. The work and the stories that we're now doing from an editorial perspective on the small site uh, is elevating the up-and-coming talent, filmmakers from around the world. And uh, it was my first year attending the festival and I hosted the awards and I thought it was just brilliant to see so many people collaborating with each other and talking about what's going on in in their worlds.
1: Yeah, I came to it this year and I really, really enjoyed it. Plus, um, yeah, there is still copious amounts of free alcohol, which always helps. But no, no, one of the things I actually really uh, enjoyed from the Small Film Festival this year was... I learned about ASAP Rocky, which he was just one of the people that was featured on there, but he's now become the creative director of MTV's backlog of content, which I just found to be fascinating, really, that, they've, that he's been put into that position um, just because he's been so innovative with content and yeah. trying new things. Uh, again, another deviation. Uh, so, final question. Uh, if you could give one piece of meaningful, meaningful advice to help people live a better and more meaningful life, what would it be? No pressure. Oh, my God.
0: Um, I have, there's far too much. You know what? I'm I'm a firm believer in understanding who people are before you give them advice. It's easy to give them some bland, off-the-cuff. You know, I, I, I've already done one. I said be yourself earlier. But uh, I, I think you also have to be true to yourself is... Sometimes you have to sit down and give yourself a good talking to. And what I mean by that is, is what is it that you really want in life? And that's friends, people, location, expertise, experience. And realistically, the worst question you can have in any interview is, where do you want to be in five years? But have you ever asked yourself that question? What would you like to be doing in five years time? Now, uh, I'd still like to be working in this industry without a doubt. I'd love to see more and more brands do more compelling work that makes me smile, makes me laugh out loud, makes me clap, you know, and that's something that's quite intriguing, actually. The last piece of content that you saw in front of you on any screen, have you ever clapped and thought, God, that is utter genius? Well, that's brilliant. And I bet you, in the last 10 years, you could probably count on one hand the time you did that. And so if we can all focus on thinking about creating something that can make other people clap,
1: then, hey, we're halfway there. Is there a piece of content that has made you clap that I can think of one?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, the, 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 I'm a Van Damme fan, so the Volvo Trucks thing, even though it was tar- – I'm never going to buy a Volvo truck, by the way. Um, so, you know, from a marketing perspective – it wasn't targeted at, you know, necessarily me, but I don't think they really created that for Volvo Truckers. I think they just created it because it was just cool. It was a good ad. And, and, and don't get me wrong, it probably cost them an arm and a leg to produce. And, you know, I didn't see enough content off the back of it. But the concept of taking something from all of his movies and translating it into something where that technology works, I thought was brilliant.
1: I agree, and the example that I have was um, a couple of students did an ad for Johnny Walker, where it's uh, his basically the the moral of the story is his brother dies, and but you get taken through this really highly emotive journey that they've they've shot in Scotland, and I think that that showed the kind of power that you can kind of create emotionally on not a lot of budget. I mean, these are yeah. these are some guys that are starting out very early, and I think they deserved all the credit they got for that. Um, so yeah, yeah, that was good. yeah, it was, uh, that was the one that I clapped. I was just like, you know, so many students producing Brillo really subpar work, and yep. these guys took it to the next level. So, really impressed, anyway. Um, I think there were some really, really fantastic insights in there. I really appreciate you taking the time out to chat with me. You're very welcome, and um, yeah, for anyone that's interested in the smalls, I've used the service. If you call it a service, what do you call it? Uh, oh, it's a content
0: marketplace that, that elevates filmmakers and gets them to create content that they're proud of for their portfolios.
1: Because uh, I know that there'll be a ton of filmmakers out there who really, really want to produce some great content and are, like just don't have the means to do so. And I was in that exact same position. Uh, I came to the Smalls. I did a couple of projects. I showed that I was capable of doing it. And then since then, we've had this continued relationship. So I encourage anyone, any filmmakers out there, Plus also any brands that are looking to kind of up their game online to come and like, you know, get in contact with the Smalls. They know what they're talking about. So yeah, give it a go. Anyway, thank you again for um, talking to me this morning and bye to everyone listening. Cheers, everyone. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to another episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to subscribe and share. There's a final parting word from me. I'd like to invite you all to an ongoing project called the Move Me mailing list. The Move Me mailing list includes links to all the interesting things I've uncovered that month, as well as resources I've discovered and insights that I believe will move you forward. So join the thousand plus early adopters who've joined the list already and see what all the fuss is about. Finally, wherever you are in the world, I hope you have a great week and see you next time for another episode. Bye for now. Today's episode was sponsored by phoby.com helping people of all ages to unlock their creative potential. To find out more about FOBI's events and what they can do for you, visit fobi.com. That's F-O-B-I.com. F-O-B-I dot com. Full of bright ideas.